And I just made a Lord of the Rings reference on purpose. Nice job. And it wasn't Tom Bombadil. And it wasn't wrong. <laughs> Live from the Mundangerous Terror Drone in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Yishin. And welcome to episode 148 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about building fortresses and secret bases. But first the rogue traders begin to understand the Verza House in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, Edward Elric gives body and soul to be a better alchemist in the character creation forge. So last week, uh, during our Morden Cadence Tome of Foes review, we mentioned that we had just gotten back from Thrillicon 2 and promised you more on it. Shane, what is Thrillicon? Thrillicon is an excuse for our gaming group to go someplace away from our family and friends and just play games for a weekend. Yeah, it originally grew out of PAX Unplugged last year where we said, oh, we're all going to go, and then that turned out to be a bust, and we just said, from now on, let's just stay inside all weekend, play <laughs> games. Let's just rent the Airbnb and <laughs> not pretend it's attached to a con. And, you know, it worked really well. Um, we went upstate, and we had probably a solid 48 hours where it was drinking and gaming and uh, pretty bad food, honestly, because we were in the middle of nowhere. Did it go well? Because I feel like we got a lot less gaming done than we than we did at PAX. That's fair. It's because there was no schedule. Right. Um, and also, mm, the very first night, Susie ran a game. Oh, yeah, that completely destroyed the group. Mm, yeah, kind of. Um, so let's explain the premise. Uh, what system was she running? Mirror? Mirror, which is a, a very simple system, I guess. Um, you basically, you get four strengths and two weaknesses, and you always roll your strength with a weakness. Uh, so you you get a score of one or two d6 in it, and that's it. Uh, you need to like average. You need to average more successes in your strengths than failures in your weaknesses. Yeah, uh, I didn't quite understand the mechanics of the system, mainly because we were given pre-gen characters um, that were us. Yeah, we were given pre-gen names, and then we had to create our characters. Right. So so each. <laughs> Each person in the group was playing some other real person in the group. I was playing uh, Angela. I was playing Jim. <laughs> Cameron was playing me. And who was playing you? Steph played me. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. And the best slash worst part of this was that we all had to communally come up with our stats. Right. As in, let's go around the table and, hey, everyone, what is uh, uh, four strengths for Ishan and then also two weaknesses? You know, personality-wise, what's the worst thing about it? <laughs> yeah, so the strengths had to be one physical, <laughs> one mental, and one social, and then the fourth one could be of any of those three categories. And then weaknesses were supposed to be like one physical, one mental, mental slash social. social. Right, yeah. Um, Shane, you actually had some pretty decent strengths. What was your first one? Was what, swole? Okay, yeah, so, so we did this by going around the circle and like agreeing to what the strength was for that person which, as a group. Which basically meant calling out. Throwing like, shade the entire time. Right, like four or five of them and everyone agreeing, okay, yeah, let's go with that one. Yeah, but it was quickly passive-aggressive. Because as soon as you discuss somebody's strength, somebody points out the opposite of that and then it's like, oh, but that's their weakness. Okay, okay, cool. So everyone got passive-aggressive in a hurry. Oh, right. Or it was, hey, you know, your strength is that you can really take a lot of criticism well. <laughs> right. <laughs> because you deserve it. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, wait. So so what were your strengths? You had swole, which, had swole. to be fair, you are the swollest of the group. That's true. I mean, it's yeah, a low it's bar. Sl sliding scale. <laughs> Uh, my mental was consulting. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. My social that's sort of what you do. My social was command, and my because you're bossy. And my fourth strength, I guess, is is a social as well. It's good old boy. Oh, right. Yes, you are from Atlanta, and uh, it really just should have said white privilege. I think that that would have worked really well. Well, it was supposed to be that I always know a guy. Oh, you do. I always got you a guy do. for that. See, and here's the thing I liked about this. You know, aside from the tearing the group apart and making us all making us all feel terrible about ourselves, is that you know when it came up, we all went, "Oh yeah, no, that's true. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah." <laughs> 
like for example my strengths uh for some reason you guys picked dexterity which I was like, I think it's just because I don't have any physical strength. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, well, I mean, it seems like uh, hand, you're bendy. Hand-eye coordination, maybe? We'll yeah, go with that, know. sure. <laughs> um, mental strength, creativity. Uh, that was nice. That was very nice of you guys. Um, uh, my social strength was youth. Although I think Cameron uh, clarified that really it was, has a painting in the attic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Somewhere there's a Dorian Gray. <laughs> that is crumbling to ash. Oh, oh dear lord, dear lord. Uh and then uh, my last one was Snark, which again, uh a bit passive aggressive there. Hey, yeah, you're really good at, you know, being, <laughs> being kind. Mean. Yes. You're a huge <laughs> douche. But no, 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 that I meant that as a strength. Right. Yeah. And then we get to our weaknesses, oh, which are much those, more direct. Mm, those are the best. So uh, so I had greedy, uh, which was really capitalist. Yeah, I mean, you are the self-described Republican and, in the uh, group. And then my other weakness was basic. <laughs> the, so I'll drink to that. The, look, I'm just saying Steph was like, you know, Shane, I just I, don't take this the wrong way, but you're kind of basic. Again, sliding scale. It's not like Steph has a whole lot of white friends. Steph, Steph is from Jersey, so yes, I I agree with you. Um, I had what I have. Oh, uh, weakness, ugly duckling. <laughs> right. Yeah, the, I guess that shows. Okay, <laughs> fine. Look, I've grown into a lovely long-necked swan. God damn it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> And maybe I have a chip on my shoulder. It's just a bit of shell. Also, to be fair, you uh, you were kind of late in the circle, so everyone was feeling extra aggressive by oh, the time yeah. we got to you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like and everyone had stopped being polite and started getting started real, getting... as they say. <laughs> Is that why uh, my other weakness was dead on the inside? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that's a strength. Okay, <laughs> callous asshole. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, Jim received uh, the weakness, the nerd, which oh, that was which shook him to his core that his D and D group had voted him the him biggest the nerd. nerd. <laughs> and yes, on the outside, Jim, like at first glance, you would think, oh, Jim is not the nerdy one in the group because he's like he is cool, but he also has the deepest nerd knowledge of any of us. And that was a very strong insight on your part, mm-hmm. right? It was one of those that like you came up with, and we all went. Oh my god, you're right. So that was, I mean, that was kind of the game though, right? Is it was just like, it's called Mirrors, and that's what it became very promptly. It was just like, <laughs> every action that got taken, mind you, we never succeeded at any role in this game. I don't understand actually how the game works, because the the odds are so stacked against you from ever accomplishing anything. Yeah, but no, every the, time, the whole point was just to make fun of each other. Right, so every time we attempted something and justified why we were attempting it, it just caused a round of introspection every single time and it was like crushing for poor jim who is pretty deep in his cups by that point and was just like staring at a mirror like not sure what had become of his life i don't know what this random reference is jim (laughs) right Uh, we also got to pick classes well everyone else picked classes for us uh what was yours i got whisper bard so was it rules lawyer no because that was the thing is like nobody was exactly sure what the set of available classes would be, right? Like what the theme of the classes were. So I pitched Rogue Trader for myself, but I ended up with Warlord Fighter. Oh, yeah, yeah. You pitched Rogue Trader, and we were like, mm, no, no, you don't get that. Even, even though Rogue Trader is all of the things you just described. <laughs> oh, sure. It's just connected, too, too nice a term. Businessy, commanding, <laughs> greedy. Greedy. <laughs> <laughs> and look, uh, skulls again. Mm, it's a bit basic. <laughs> So yeah, the problem is you got to sell it. You got to you got to soft sell it or else you don't get what you want. Oh yeah. You, yeah, you seemed like you you were interested in having it and so right. we couldn't let you. <laughs> of course, that was just the first night. The next day, we spent what, 12 hours playing Birthright? Well, we spent most of the morning recovering between hangovers and emotional hangovers yeah. <laughs> and and mostly like oh the end of this game right of course was us creating Susie's character as the gm after we had experienced this whole thing in which we were just spiteful and vindictive <laughs> like we didn't say a single nice thing every strength was a weakness every weakness was a double weakness right, was, oh naive <laughs> right. uh, 
manipulative <laughs> hateful wait right. we only get two hold on right um so anyway yeah so the next morning we recovered emotionally and physically and then i i mean it wasn't until like one o'clock that we really got to start playing uh birthright finally but we also didn't stop playing birthright till about 1 a.m until 1 a.m yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean we did take a nap and a dinner break <laughs> Um, but yeah, we won't go in, into it in too much detail, but we did get to play the, was it the War of Inurian Reunification? Well, the first war, yeah. The, the, <laughs> yes. the war of, uh, of Alemanian... Aggression. Uh, uh, is it aggression or, like, assumption? <laughs> we just assumed them into Tornan. Yeah, uh, we did succeed in reuniting Tornan and Alami after definitely murdering the Baron of Gore. Yeah. In cold blood. And then stealing his bloodline. And then post facto declaring him an enemy combatant. Like like all good democracies. <laughs> and then setting up a face-swapping warlock in his place to declare that he was going to withdraw his armies. Yep. That worked well. It did. The war of uh, Alamanian annexation was successful. The we, war, we, I believe. <laughs> we took over Alamy, reunited the kingdom of Alamy, the ancient kingdom of Alamy uh, with Tornin, and, and now we run both. Uh, we strengthened our alliance with Moriad, and uh, we've created a puppet state out of Gore, our main um, military rival in the region. And now we just need to destroy the other two claimants to the crown. Avenel and Borrowing. One at a time, though, because they're also enemies. And the enemy of my enemy is, is also my enemy. Is my part-time ally. <laughs> <laughs> For now. Uh, so, yeah, so that took 12 hours, of which... A solid two to three hours was simply arguing over the morality of what we had just done in the assassination and then arguing over the correct way to structure our newfound empire. There was a lot of Googling of the Geneva Conventions. Yes. <laughs> and then me insisting that you should not be able to raise a child, which to be fair, you should not be able to. I never said my character would raise a child. <laughs> <laughs> just that the kid would live in your country. My house, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my noble house, not even, like, my house. Yeah, like... <laughs> I don't want to uh, be near that I kid. I would never see them. Yeah. That kid I, sucks. I was like, let's just write them out of the story. Who cares? I don't care about this kid. I hate this kid. <laughs> let's just drown him. <laughs> like a kitten. All right, then we played a bit of Rogue Trader. Yeah, it's always good when we start Rogue Trader at 1 a.m. after we've been drinking all day. Is that why we accomplished so much? Yeah. So, first of all, we introduced the Rogue Trader herself into the campaign for the first time. She's always been this kind of background figure. Uh, and now Susie is taking her over as a character. Because Susie's finally here for the game. Right. <laughs> Susie's work schedule has finally allowed her to join the Rogue Trader game. So um, so that worked out nicely. And then otherwise, um, there was some investigation that went on that was very, very muddled, <laughs> mostly by alcohol. Yeah, we should be looking where exactly? It was like, if I were a person who knew how to investigate a crime... <laughs> What would I be doing right now? <laughs> I believe, yes, a couple of times, like 2.30 in the morning, I was like, please railroad us. <laughs> don't know what's happening. <laughs> uh, and then by 4 o'clock in the morning, we just kind of gave up. Perfect. So, yes, we should work on our time management. But overall, Thrillicon 2, a success. Speaking of bad time management, Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted Campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the Dead World Malajak, the Rogue Traders and their two best companies of armsmen have located the Verza House, an ancient obsidian fortress once occupied by the fallen Dark Angel, Lord Zypher. And the Rogue Traders and their armsmen have suffered some sleepless, haunted nights as they explored the Verza House. They've repelled a dual attack that uh, came from the roof of the fortress into the upper casements, as well as from a secret tunnel they found in the lowest reaches of the basement. And then Seneschal Trix and Astropath Flare kind of pursued them out of that tunnel. Uh, they split the party. That was dumb. They split the party, uh, fell directly into a trap because the attackers uh, collapsed the tunnel behind them. So they're stuck going forward while the rest of you are cut off back in the house. So Flair again tries to telepathically contact the Inquisitor who sent us on this ridiculous mission in the first place. She denies receiving any previous message from him. Even though he had heard back from her. Like, she had responded to him, allegedly, and and now she's saying that she's never received any message from him. Yeah, well, we knew she sucked. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, 
she tells Flair to hold the fortress at all costs. Yay. Which is an eerily familiar message because it was the last one that she had sent him. Interesting. Now, hold at all costs usually means, hey, you're all going to die, and you should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so die for this. Good luck. Now, this has Flair kind of shook, right? He doesn't understand why his psychic abilities aren't working. Like, it's not weird that Vox comms go down because the Vox is very unreliable. But, you know, psychers are reliable. Psychers work. This isn't working for him anymore. But they go back to the old technology methods, so they do manage to make Vox contact with the Verza house. In the meantime, Draco has been exploring and resecuring the upper casements and the roof, which is, remember, where the initial attack came from. And from that vantage point, he spots a courtyard that he is 100% sure isn't on any of our maps, which, of course, means that this place has areas that are still unexplored, and, of course, that means they are unsecured, Mm, which means attacks could come from there at any time. Yay. So now that everyone is doubting the value of the maps they have and, and wondering what's going on with this house, Echo begins collecting them up and comparing them with some of the data in the Inquisitor's Codex. And she arrives at a pretty startling discovery. The maps you have are wrong, right? Like, they're not accurate, but it's not because they're showing the wrong place. You know, there, there are some of them just look like they're not even the Verza house at all. But it's not that they're showing the wrong place. They're just showing the Verza house at different points in time. Dun, dun, dun. And we'll find out what that means next week. So this week, we are talking about building strongholds and bases. So this is a topic suggested by listener David. He wants to know, you know, how do you build and use strongholds and bases for your party? So that sounds like a lot of paperwork. First off, why would you even want to do this? So from a character perspective, it gives you like a safe place for downtime and recuperation. It gives you something to invest all of your gold in and kind of you know, leave your mark on the setting. Yeah, it's literally called a base because, you know, uh, all of those rules we now have in 5th edition D&D, for example, where it's, hey, if you have three weeks of time where you're not actually fighting anything, here are some things you can do, researching and making potions and scrolls and blah, blah, blah. You kind of need a place to do that Mm -hmm. because, I don't know, I think most inns aren't well equipped uh, and probably aren't well secured. Right. Um, and after a while, while it might be like, I heard some explosions coming from your room. And I was just thinking, I don't know, maybe you could not do that. Yep. Also, you know, it's nice to own land. <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Neither would I. Um, yeah. And from a GM perspective, you know how in the late game, no matter what game you're playing, in the late game, you've usually got a party who is so flush with cash or credits or whatever and they're just like i don't know what to do with this because it's likely that you don't have a you're not playing a game where you know you can literally pay cash for like plus three weapons or like a spaceship you know um those are things you sort of hand out as loot so you've you've got all of this hard cash currency burning a hole in your pocket what can you do with it one of the best things to do is like to buy lots of building materials because those things really add up when you're like Okay, I want to surround a 100-square-foot courtyard in um, planar limestone. How much does that cost? A billion gold pieces. Yeah, you want to build that vault so you can store all your stuff so you're not just carrying around everything on your back like a hobo. Yeah, because you have not invested in strength. Right. You left it at eight. (laughs) Let's be honest. So this will give the party a feeling of ownership, right? Of, of a piece of the setting, like a piece of the map that just belongs to them, right? That they have control over and then that they dictate what happens. Yeah, um, and it, it's a really nice way to get them invested in um, a particular location or a country or, or even just like um, the behind the scenes of the storyline. You know, like what is it my character is doing? Oh, wait, I have a place that I live now. Like I have a room I have a house. I have I have people who work for me. Like I'm responsible for like cooks and maids and an armorer and probably like an alchemist. It's good to have people. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like I've got I've got a lawyer now. <laughs> he handles that for me. Why does he live here? And it is a, a new level of responsibility for your players. Um, you know, up until this point they've probably been only concerned about you know am i keeping myself alive 
Uh, if they're really into the role play, they're like, oh, you know, I'm buying myself nice clothes or jewelry or something like that. Or at uh, the maximum, they're concerned about, uh, you know, how the party is getting along. You know, oh, do we have the right heraldry or like, do we have a name for our group? This is, you have a building and there's a lot of stuff that you've got to keep track of and many more ways for you to get invested in this game. So depending on which system you're playing, you can also shift the focus of the game towards something more granular, right? Like if you're playing kind of epic swashbuckling adventures, then, you know, this might be a chance for that more mechanically oriented or or more numbers oriented player to kind of pay attention to their, you know, house finances and that kind of thing, right? It gives them a, a different level of focus. Yeah, we talked about how Birthright is kind of a nice shift for us. Uh, in that there's a lot more paperwork. It is much more granular. It's kind of fun for a little while to argue about the tax code. Right. (laughs) And then like to roll dice and wonder if we can afford to do the thing we want to do this turn, (laughs) even though we are super rich nobles with no lack of access to power. This palace is very expensive. Right. (laughs) Oh, dear Lord, we're going into deep, deep debt. (laughs) We have the austerity years to pay for our summer palace. (laughs) Oh, the people are revolting because of the level of taxes. (laughs) Right. It's fine, just a couple more months. What if we... Dispatch the demagogue. (laughs) (laughs) What if we borrow against the treasury and our future yield in grain? (laughs) Can we sell an alliance? (laughs) (laughs) Do we have any heirs who need to get married off? Right. How much is a dowry? Of course, it's also something for your party to lose. Uh, Aside from just their lives or NPCs, if they spend a lot of time investing in this location it's going to get assaulted. Uh, There's going to be a siege. It's just going to happen. And, you know, part of the fun is trying to repel that and really feeling like, oh, no, I don't want to lose all this work that I put into it. Yeah, and it doesn't even need to necessarily be like a physical assault on the building, right? Like a stronghold exists in in a place and that place has its own like people and economy and everything that aren't related to the stronghold. So if something some ill fortune befalls those people in like the region you live it also affects your stronghold yeah if the blood war spills out into the material plane okay you can't stop it but you can guide it well there's a large populated area or there is where your stronghold is right which do you pick and like you know if your stronghold happens to be in a major city then suddenly that city's politics become important to your character right like you don't want them changing the zoning and all of a sudden you've got to like paint your roof a different color (laughs) Yeah, or or allow businesses on the ground floor. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is like you you got you got stuff to lose here. Yeah. Keys to the portcullis. No. <laughs> it's glyphs of warding. Right. Uh, and all of this is to say that the the number one value for a GM of introducing this into the game is to create new plot hooks. Right. That your characters are automatically interested in or that take your give you a new direction for your campaign. Right. A, a way to inspire continued adventure. Yeah, if you center something on the stronghold that the party has invested time and effort into, they're going to pick up that hook. Because otherwise, they lose or jeopardize the stronghold. Right. All right, so at what point in your game should you be giving out a stronghold? And I think a lot of this can be up to the party. You know, it can be really early in the game. If at level three, the party has succeeded in clearing out the kobold caverns, uh, if the next thing that they do is try to figure out how to fortify it great it sounds like they want to have a stronghold yeah they should hire some kobolds to fortify their caverns (laughs) (laughs) you guys seem really good with the traps yeah (laughs) uh were you related to these Uh, don't worry about those corpses the alternative right is there's a there's a natural point in the story where they're no longer you know on the the hero's journey kind of arc right they're no longer scrabbling for survival they've now amassed a little bit of influence or wealth or whatever and they're looking for a place to park it so it's great to offer them an opportunity to like you know buy something build something be part of something bigger that's more of a like second act kind of story point yeah if you remember back to the you know three act structure in the second act the the party is is well known you know they have a reputation Um, it's also the time where at the second act they probably suffer some kind of blow so you can place the stronghold building either in the second act you know uh, we have have, uh, renown people are aware of us 
they want a location where people can come to us and like ask us for assistance great that'll be our stronghold and then i don't know maybe an attack on the stronghold is the uh, end of the second act um it could also be the be- end of the second beginning of the third is when you know they're picking up the pieces from their defeat uh preparing for that big final battle and that's when they're like okay you know what we actually need yeah. uh, we need we need a base we need a base yeah, yeah. An no, army I, would be great. I do like that that building a stronghold and then taking it away is kind of what pushes the adventurers out of the door where they were kind of, you know, growing fat on the land and that sort of thing. Like now they've got to get lean and they've got to go back to their old ways of actually handling business themselves. I do kind of like that idea of, okay, we had a stronghold and now we don't have a stronghold and I guess it's back to wandering adventurers and hobos and all we've got is what's on our back. But of course, what's on our back is way more powerful right now. Yeah, exactly. And also like, you know, we each horde we come across is enough to build an entire new stronghold. So we were still going to do that. We're going to rebuild it. Right. <laughs> but in the meantime, we are wandering the plains. Exactly. <laughs> we're wandering much, much further than we ever have before, but we're still wanderers. And if we need to get home, I guess we just teleport. Right. <laughs> so then the other great way to do it and the way that you did it in the Morning Glory campaign was to just have it randomly fall on the player's lap. Uh, I think it was a card draw from the deck of many things that made... Uh, Calic, Lord Calic. Yeah, you get a keep. Right, it was the tower, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. What, what do I, what do I do with this? I mean, you do whatever you want with it, but like, it's a town. It's like and, you, uh, it's a fortified town. You magically know that you own a keep somewhere, and they magically know that you own this keep. Now you just need to go find the keep that you own. <laughs> right. In <laughs> fact, you've always owned this keep. They've just been waiting for you. You've just got to wander <laughs> around the parking lot with your keys, hitting the panic button, and hoping that you can hear the horn. <laughs> What are you doing here? I'm just trying my keys in the door. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I own this place. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you've decided to introduce strongholds into your game. What are the components that are necessary to kind of make them work? So we're going to go through a list of a bunch of different components. You absolutely don't need to integrate all of these. One of the best things to do is actually to ask the party uh, to tell you about their stronghold or what what are their priorities for uh, decking it out. You know, and if they don't care about something, maybe you don't care about it. Or maybe that turns out to be a blind spot. Like if they didn't really focus on uh, securing the vault, perhaps that's where they get attacked. So the first thing to think about is what is the location? And this is actually going to help you determine what kind of stronghold it is. If you think about in fiction, there's the castle on the hill, you know, and it's fortified. uh, It can see everything around it, and it has some sort of relationship to whatever country or countryside it's in. But you can also have like Nanda Parbat, a monastery, you know, high in the Himalayas, which doesn't really have very high walls. Like people can just jump over them. Uh, but at the same time, it's extremely difficult to get to. Or uh, we just uh, read through Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes, and it talks about the Githzerai having fortresses in limbo. Uh, they're also made of adamantine, so it's kind of both uh, right. impregnable and very difficult to get to. Right. Or it could just be totally secret, like the Batcave. Yeah, a very well-kept secret. <laughs> <laughs> a miraculously well-kept secret. <laughs> So you want to think about who are the neighbors. Maybe there are no neighbors. But maybe if you're the castle on the hill, everyone can see where you live. And how do they feel about that? Are you the protectors? Or are you those strange, mysterious people who actually never use the front door? Yeah, are you the, uh, is it the haunted house on the hill? Uh, And, you know, are you the rulers of this uh, political area? Like, are you the kings and queens? Or do you have, do you um, offer fealty to the local ones? Or is it like a tentative truce? Are they going to protect you if you're not around? Then you also want to think about if it's a portable or a movable location, right? Something like uh, Darren's Instant Fortress, where you can deploy it anywhere, or even like a vehicle, like, say, a rogue trader ship or, you know, the flagship of a fleet, things like that. Then you probably want to have some kind of detailed and adjustable layout so that you know where everything is. Now, this doesn't have to be a full, like, battle map, although actually I really enjoy that, you know, sort of. Uh, when you present the stronghold in the first place, you kind of roll out this big map and go, hey, look, you got five stories. Here are the rooms. You tell me what are in these rooms. Right. Um, that also works if your stronghold is like a planet, right? In, in some like sci-fi games, like that's the level of scale. You have just a fortress planet. So cool. Like here's the planet map. Like here are the continents. Where's your stuff? Uh, yeah, look, that's great. Unless that planet turns out to be a death world, Shane. <laughs> oh, Sorry. You think it's your stronghold? <laughs> Interesting. 
<laughs> you thought I was rewarding you by giving you that? <laughs> Funny. In game, it was supposed to be a reward. <laughs> Everything's a punishment in Rogue Trader. Right, in the grim darkness of the far future. <laughs> uh, so now that you're getting into the nitty gritty, your party's gonna wanna designate at least one main person to sort of be the quartermaster or the the accountant, someone who's tracking all this stuff. The scribe, yeah, yeah. How many windows are there? How are these windows secured? Um, but, how much money do we have? That's maybe a little more granular than you need to worry about, but it is a good idea to at least have a treasury, um, maybe a, a sense of like what collection of arms or you know magic items and equipment you have stored there, that sort of stuff. How exactly how many halberds do we have? <laughs> maybe okay. how many halberdsmen do we have? <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of like a treasury, um, you want to have a place for everyone or everything that is important to your party. So obviously there should be a room for everyone in the party, but then also guest rooms and, you know, places where you uh, might entertain visitors or dignitaries. Dungeons, you know. You definitely need dungeons. Places I said dignitaries. <laughs> a summoning circle. Places you can store your halfling. <laughs> it's a bucket. I have a halfling bucket. I'm kidding. It's, it's the place where you store your kender. <laughs> They're always in there anyway. I just put, I just dumped him over and put the whole thing in. Right. You know the worst thing about uh, women's wizard robes? No pockets. I, yeah, I know. It's ridiculous. Ri- it's ridiculous. It really is. It's you know why? It's because all wizards robe manufacturers are men. You know, we got to fix that. I know. I, I mean, I agree. You're also going to want specialized locations. If you have an alchemist, you need an alchemical laboratory. Uh, if you have a summoner who <laughs> needs a planar binding circle, you really want to make sure that's in a separate room. Yeah. I mean, if you have most spellcasters or sage types, you're going to want a library. Um, if you have more warrior types, they're going to want training grounds, that sort of thing. Probably oh, yeah. stables and, you know, armories, those types. You want to think about the defenses because if you have a stronghold, it yeah, it's is not always... called a weak hold. <laughs> It is always a possibility that it's going to be attacked. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if it never does, then the reward is, hey, your players prepared really well. Or you as the player, I came up with all of these defenses and we spent all this money. And so no one ever attacked us because like, it's obviously impregnable. Duh. So you got to think about what is it that is present- preventing people from entering when you don't want them to get in? You know, the walls, what are they made of? How thick are they? Uh, the gate is there a password is there a key the automated electronic defenses the Uh, cameras the uh servitor the gun servitors (laughs) uh the reprogrammed terminators right but also think about what prevents um spying in that location right so is there anti-scrying magic or is there like um, electronic you know anti-electronic surveillance countermeasures that sort of thing Mm -hmm. if someone does get in what prevents them from moving around guards and wards is a great spell for this if you're playing in a fantasy setting but like shane said the automated defenses or uh sentries or even just a guard patrol you know um people who you trust or pay or build who um, are always on guard even when you're not because you're probably out adventuring and then when people do get in or if people do get in how do you fight back are there uh, locations where the party can retreat if people get inside yeah are there arrow slits that make it better for defense things like that and think about the statistics you don't have to go into super detail but it is kind of nice to have a general idea of how many hit points does each five foot section of wall have you know so that you can just sort of guesstimate all right if uh they launch like a trebuchet and three fireballs at one section of wall should we be worried about that man i would not even get into that level of detail i would just keep it descriptive right of like like you you need to know how thick the walls are in the sense of like they're very thick they're moderately thick they're paper thin but like i would just leave it at descriptive and let the gm sort of fill in those details if and when they become relevant to give you like mechanical numbers see that's interesting because i would definitely delve in on a granular level because if you look at the uh there's a new sixth level is it druid spell i don't know where you make a castle like i think it takes 10 minutes and you make a castle and it it gives you like here's how many hit points each 10 foot section of wall has per inch of thickness actually i like to know those numbers so that i can be like I'm pretty sure the fireball doesn't do anything to our wall. I don't know. I'm just throwing this out there. I mean, you would, but... I, I would, yes. Any any GM is just going to turn around and be like, great, 
two fireballs, heightened fireball, maximized fireball. I melt through your fucking wall. But how many rounds is that? <laughs> <laughs> like the the point is, it's still it's a narrative element, right? So if you're being attacked, you're being attacked. If it's a if it's a you know a combat encounter, then it gets statistics. And if it's a narrative encounter, then it doesn't matter. Look, that's why we paid for the self repairing walls from the plane of law. Okay, so that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you alluded to this earlier, but you want to think about the staff. So if you just have like a wizard's tower and everyone lives there, okay, maybe you create water and, you know, you have unseen serpents. But if you've got a castle or a giant stronghold, um, you probably have like butlers. And I don't know, they may even have families. Mm-hmm. They may come and go. Where is the food and water coming from? These are going to be important if you are under siege. Oh, yes, very important. And in fact, probably the biggest threat to you is loss of food and water in a siege. Yeah, uh, you should probably build a helipad or teleportation circle pretty quickly. Although those are other means of ingress, so... Uh. Right. Um, you also need to think about loyalty, right? Uh, any any human staff is also a potential risk. So um, how well do you treat your staff? How loyal to you are they? Like, would they die for you? Would they take the first bribe that they're offered? Yeah, this always happens with, like, the Justice League, where, you know, they have that teleportation from the like the cornfield in kansas where like the workers who are on the watchtower go up but they're just like regular dudes and someone always just bribes them or like shape changes into one of them and then boom they're on the watchtower great right you also do need to think about um a power supply Mm, is it wood for your fireplaces or is it electricity do you have generators like is that able to be cut off and then it also makes sense to think about offense, particularly if you're if you're talking about a more mobile kind of stronghold, right? One that could be used for actual offense. You and mean not my, just my flying castle? <laughs> yeah, a flying castle, <laughs> you know, a flagship, a command base, a mobile command base, those types of things. Yeah, we have the Eldritch Blasters. <laughs> right. <laughs> turbo, uh, twin-linked, turbo-mounted Eldritch Blasters. Perfect. Uh, but yeah, you usually want some sort, some form of range attack, even if that is just guys with arrows. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like a longbows belt, and arrow slits. Uh, you know, boiling pots of oil. Right, crenellations. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have an army housed inside your stronghold that you can open the gates and you know out they come and they break the siege? Then you'll also want to think about surveillance. So how how do you maintain awareness of what's going on around you? Do you have lookouts or a crow's nest or? A, you know, like a, a network of spies associated with your stronghold? Do you use scrying magic or, or something else to sort of keep magical means of surveillance or anti-surveillance? Yeah, that's my favorite way to do it usually is like to have a scrying room, you know, and it's, it's one person's job during the downtime to like cast the scrying spell every day, <laughs> see what's going on. That's very Soromon. Uh, I believe I said dead inside, right? <laughs> All hope is lost. And I just made a Lord of the Rings reference on purpose. <laughs> nice job. And it wasn't Tom Bombadil. And it wasn't wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then last of all, the treasury. Or more importantly, how is your loot stored? Because <laughs> it's rarely is it the coinage that's important to you. It's probably the artifacts or the uh, you know magic items. I sleep with all of it on. I sleep in my armor. Four sets of magic armor, man. The king. He's very strange. <laughs> That's a lot of jewelry. The lord of this manor is an eccentric. He's not from these lands. <laughs> he grew extra fingers so he could wear more Boring. rings. Yeah. <laughs> he keeps saying, mm, can I get that magic item in socks? Because there's no <laughs> limit to the number of socks I can wear. <laughs> the boots resize. <laughs> I like the idea of your character not having a place to store jewelry. So instead of wearing gauntlets, he just has rings like lining his fingers. <laughs> And then bracelets. <laughs> Bracers? No, no. Bracelets. bracelets. <laughs> Are those, is that an armor ring? No, it's nine rings. <laughs> uh, and how are you retrieving this loot if it is so well protected? Because, of course, when you go to get it, that is when it is most vulnerable. Right. All right. So there's certainly some caveats when you're dealing with this kind of stuff. And, you know, the disagreement chain and I have had exemplifies it you can really get bogged down in verisimilitude you know the the realism aspect um i would suggest not doing that um you could do it in a a mechanical way but if you 
lean too far into you know what is a real world stronghold like it, it's it's not going to work out because there's always very easy ways ultimately to circumvent it especially with like fantasy abilities right yeah i, w- I will say i think you can help avoid these problems if you group everybody into a stronghold, right? So if the team has a stronghold rather than granting individual strongholds to each character, because now, like, you can sort of divide where your interests lie, right? Like, Ishin wants to know how thick the walls are and how many hit points they have, and I don't. So Ishin can worry about the walls and the hit points, and I'll worry about things like, how does our spy network interact with the local economy? I do not care. (laughs) But do you know... 180 hit points per inch of thickness, okay? It's really great. Yeah, right. And how many peasants will that keep out in a famine? Infinite. (laughs) And keep in mind, like, this isn't going to be for everyone, you know? Um, Some players might not have any interest in this kind of stronghold building activity. Great. They don't have to do it. Um, They can focus on other aspects of the campaign, and this is something that people who are interested in can do on their own. And, you know, if it turns out that the stronghold protects an uninterested character maybe they get interested also look out for min maxers yeah as it turns out stronghold rules in most games either don't exist or are not very concretely formed so there's a an opportunity for the min maxer to really arbitrage your loose definition and cost structure into something that can be unrealistically world-breaking yeah, like, or at least economy breaking. Like, how cheap is all the wood? Great, I buy all the wood in the world, and now I have a monopoly on wood. Like, come at me. That's my stronghold. It's a wood depot. Yeah, it's much easier than having a monopoly on sheep or wheat. Or wheat. Or clay. <laughs> Nobody wants your clay either. It's always more clay. So, to wrap this up, if you're looking to sort of shake things up or, you know, reinterest a, like, mid to high level group who has explored the vast majority of things that a typical game covers, then I highly recommend throwing something like a stronghold or giving them the option to build out a base of power because it's going to it's gonna stretch them in ways that a typical RPG doesn't. Yeah, I also like it if, uh, if you've gotten to a point as a party where you've accomplished what you what the party set out to do and now you're not sure what's next right like the stronghold becomes a great way to create more plot hooks for the party by just the virtues of having to now do something out of your comfort zone you're no longer kicking in doors you're now reinforcing and constructing them yeah no wonder everyone's door was so easy to kick in yeah they didn't even cross brace it (laughs) (laughs) what was the frame made of all right do you hear that ishan Uh, That's just the sound of the oil reaching its boiling point. Well, if it's almost ready, then it's time to move on to the Character Creation Forge. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sends Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.totalpartythrillcast.com We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill. So today is the last day of May, which means it is our last anime. Uh, we missed it last week, don't worry. We are going to post an additional one online that you can take a look at. But this week, we're doing Edward Elric from Full Metal Alchemist. Yeah, um, who is this? I've heard of Full Metal Alchemist. Yeah, FMA. So Edward Elric is, um, he's a combat alchemist, which sounds pretty cool and actually is pretty cool. Um, so he fights to turn lead to gold? Actually, that's one of his low-level level abilities. Transmuting um, one element into another, no big deal. So Edward is, uh, weirdly, he's actually a brawler. Um, he's a hand-to-hand fighter, mainly because he is missing an arm and a leg, and they have been replaced with uh, metal versions of them called automail. Okay, but he, if you're a brawler, wouldn't you rather have lead implements than gold? Because <laughs> gold is super soft and not very dense. No, they're metal. Metal, not gold. Okay, well, where's the alchemy? Uh, he turns objects into other objects, not necessarily lead into gold. So, for example, so he'll take... full metal transmuter. Yeah, we'll go with that. He, okay. he, will, he will turn his arm... His, like, go-to ability is he turns his arm into a sword and then stabs people with it. Okay. 
Cool. (laughs) (laughs) I I guess that's easier than just grabbing a sword with an arm, but yeah, sure. (laughs) Now, Edward is is also a strategic genius, and he is able to do... um, I think they're called trans- transmutations, alchemical transmutations, uh, much faster than normal. He doesn't need to like draw a circle on the ground. Um, so he's able to do them in the middle of combat. He can uh, he can do what essentially looks like casting spells, right? He can um, fire uh, bolts of energy. He can uh, make hands of stone rise from the ground. He can make spikes grow from the earth uh, by transmuting, transmuting the shape of the ground or uh, turning one metal into a different kind of metal that is stronger and harder. Okay, so what's the build? It is Transmuter Wizard 11, Eldritch Knight 6, Divine Soul Sorcerer 3. So from Wizard, we're going to get six level spells. We're also going to get uh, Minor Transmutation, which seems like it's pretty important to this alchemist. And then the key ability there for Transmuter is Transmuter Stone. Uh, Yeah, and that gives you a couple of options, one of which is proficiency in constitution saving throws, which of course is going to make it easier for you to maintain concentration. Um, You could also resist a particular kind of elemental damage. If you watch the anime, you can see that Edward is extremely durable. Uh, He gets thrown around a lot and just sort of gets back up. And part of that is because, you know, he's got a metal arm and a metal leg, but also he's an anime character. Like, you know, he can smash into a wall with his body and not just be dead so he's pretty tough from eldritch knight we'll get the equivalent of two more spell levels we also get weapon bond now remember that ed ed's main thing at the beginning of a fight is okay i turn my metal arm into some kind of slashing weapon and that is essentially a bonus action to call a weapon from wherever it is that's your weapon bond ability Right at the beginning of the battle, great, you spend a bonus action and your sword appears in your hand. That is mildly reflavored to, I turn my arm into a sword. You also get extra attack because he fights very quickly and whatever fighting style you like. Defense is nice, you'll uh, have heavy armor here, which also um, is a good way of modeling his uh, metal appendages. Yeah, great weapon fighting also works if you want to have a big sword for an arm. Two arms for a sword, if you will. (laughs) From Sorcerer, we're mainly going for metamagic uh, and quicken, because remember, uh, Ed is one of those combat alchemists who can cast these transmutations very quickly in the middle of battle. So he can, for example, stab someone with spikes from the ground to hold them in place, you know, hold person, uh, and then stab them a bunch of times for a crit because they can't move out of the way. And while you only have three sorcery points as a level three sorcerer, you can uh, consume your lower level spell slots to regain sorcery points to give you yourself a little more uh, longevity. All right, so a quick rundown of some of the abilities that he uses. Obviously, he can transmute one element into another, and that is minor transmutation. He makes his blade from a hand. He also does the thing where he pulls a spear from out of the ground, like he transmutes the ground into like a a long pole arm that also is weapon bond because remember you can bond up to two separate weapons uh he will often make a giant stoned hand that comes out of the ground uh there are a couple different spells that uh, work for this at second level you get uh maximilian's earthen grasp uh but at fifth level you also get the big bee's big hand bee. spells right and just say hey they're made of stone the spikes uh he makes spikes come out of the ground or the wall um, he also can make uh, stone snakes that seize the opponent, and I think that works really well as a hold person. So again, hold person, quicken, I feel like should be your bread and butter. Web also works. Oh, yeah. Um, he can make walls, which obviously is wall of stone. Um, you've got wall of force as well. I think stone's probably more flavorful. Um, he can create stone golems straight out of the ground instantly, which you can also do if you summon an earth elemental. And, of course, one of his high-level abilities is deconstructing matter at an atomic level, which sounds a lot like the Disintegrate spell. He also does this thing where um, lightning comes out of his hand. That's simply just a shocking grasp. And later he learns to heal himself. So, guess what? You're a divine soul sorcerer. You have cure wounds. Lovely. All right, so before we wrap up, we want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. 
You can also leave us a five-star review on iTunes, which will help other people find the podcast. And if you do, we will read it on the air, even if it is very long, like this one. Yeah, maybe we should trade off reading this one. <laughs> okay, this is a phenomenal RPG podcast, one of the best, by Les Blaise. I've never reviewed a podcast, even though I listen to a ton of RPG podcasts. But after discovering Total Party Thrill, I'm going out of my way to describe to you, dear reader, why you need to listen to this podcast. Now. Right now. When I first stumbled upon Total Party Thrill, I was looking for a new RPG podcast to entertain me for an upcoming road trip. Skimming the titles of their episodes, I saw a few that looked like interesting topics, so I downloaded them. Now, I listen to RPG podcasts for the capital T Theory. Not merely gaming and GMing advice, but for the deep, critical analysis of gaming topics related to RPGs. I want a philosophical dialogue, not a let's play. Many RPG podcasts, which I don't enjoy, claim to do this, but in actuality spend much of their time either A, talking about the host's personal campaigns, B, focusing too much on a single system, usually D&D, or C, doing some insipid, ostensibly quirky exercise every episode. Turns out, one could indeed call this an apt description of Total Party Thrill. And God, do I love every second of it. They begin every episode by narrating a small part of a campaign they're running. First it was Eberron in 5th edition D&D, then their Rogue Trader game. These descriptions are always funny, engaging, and quick. They then proceed to the main topic at hand. Again, their discussions of these topics are funny and natural, while simultaneously concise and deep. They often focus on D&D, but also discuss matters in a more general sense, and often bring in other game systems. They then move on to their character creation forge, where they attempt to create unique character concepts through a 20th level 5th edition D&D character. I haven't played D&D 5th edition since it was in playtest, and this podcast really makes me want to play D&D again. I've never played Warhammer 40k anything, and right now I want to play in a Rogue Trader game so badly. What makes Total Party Thrill worth it, what sets it apart from the other podcasts, are the hosts. From my experience, you get two sorts of RPG podcasts. Ones that are scripted and disciplined in their delivery, but therefore staid and monotonous. Or you get ones that are more freeform and natural, but then the hosts just ramble and ramble, repeating themselves multiple times. Ishan and Shane have somehow transcended this pattern. I can't tell if their episodes are scripted or not, because they're concise in their deliveries, never repeat themselves, and are great at remaining on topic. Yet their discussions feel natural, off the cuff, and are full of the sort of witty, engaging banter that you'd expect from an improvised show. If I came across an episode of Total Party Thrill which I thought would contribute absolutely nothing to my technique as a GM... Which is all of them. Yeah, let's be fair. Experience as a role player or understanding of the hobby, I would still listen. They are that engaging and enjoyable. You should listen to this podcast. You should become a patron of their Patreon. You should write them a 538-word review on iTunes. They're worth it. Please do not write us a 538-word review. While we appreciate this one... We will treasure this one. It is exhausting to read out loud. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like having a script. As you can tell, we are not great at reading off the page. (laughs) Right, we're clearly not reading. (laughs) You know, we've discussed our secret before. It is that only one of us knows what the hell we're talking about in any given episode. Right. (laughs) And the other is the jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? Ah, we're talking about gaming conventions. And in the Character Creation Forge? We're building Heavens Above, Hells Below. Well, that's it for episode 148 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name. But either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.